An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. I am always open to new ideas, open to new people, open to new clients, because that's where the future is. The future isn't where people are frozen in a position or in a place. It's thinking about what is the next step. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to this episode of Math & Magic. Today, we're going to explore the insider's view of deals and strategy in business, especially the entertainment and media business. Our guest today has seen it all, has been in the middle of it all, and has even been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's a true insider. It's deal maker, extraordinaire, and as some call him, super lawyer, Alan Grubman. Alan is Brooklyn born, Brooklyn Law School, and still wears it all as his identity. He represents Bruce Springsteen, Elton John, Madonna, U2, Lady Gaga, John Mellicamp, and on and on. As a child, he sang show tunes on an NBC Children's Hour every week. That is, until his voice changed. And as an adult, he still has the comfort of being a performer and knows how to engage his audience. He's on the inside as a friend and trusted advisor to legends like David Geffen, as well as executives and artists he represents. He is the guy who was in the room and really knows what happened. He's been my close friend and advisor for over 40 years. He was instrumental in building MTV in the early days, and he continued his relationship there long after I left. And he's even been key to us as we built iHeartMedia. But most of all, he's a great human who cares deeply about others. Alan, welcome. Thank you very, very much for that introduction. Before we get started, we have a thing we do on Math & Magic called You in 60 Seconds. You ready? Shoot. Do you prefer cats or dogs? Dogs. Early riser or night owl? Very early riser. East Coast or West Coast? East Coast for sure. Frank Sinatra or Bruce Springsteen? I think Bruce won't be too pissed off. Frank Sinatra. MTV or iHeartRadio? iHeartRadio. AM or FM? FM. The Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Beatles. Call or text? Call, without a doubt. 
It's about to get harder. Favorite era of music? The American Songbook. Favorite TV show? Curb Your Enthusiasm. Favorite radio station? Seriously, Sinatra. Favorite movie? The Godfather movies. Favorite actor? Robert De Niro. Favorite city? New York. Then right behind New York is uh, Paris and London. You got a quote to live by? If you do right by people, they'll end up doing right by you. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I wanted to be in the entertainment business. And when I realized that I had no talent, the second best thing was to be an entertainment lawyer. That doesn't involve that much talent. (laughs) Okay, let's start with the music business. The music business has made many transitions. The 45 to the LP, cassette tapes, CDs was a big move. But the biggest and most disruptive of my life was the transition to digital downloads, which also moved from consumers buying one track instead of an entire album. Many experts thought the industry would not survive it. And indeed, Lynn Blavatnik bought Warner Music for what at the moment seemed like a high price. Today, in retrospect, seems like the deal of the century. Streaming subscription services replaced downloads, and the industry rebounded. And today, Universal, Sony, and Warner are healthier and more valuable than they've ever been. And the indies are too. So here's the question. What's the next issue lurking out there that the music industry will have to contend with? What's hanging over them? Well, that's the $64 question. What they're doing now is reaping the benefits of streaming, which delights them beyond belief. In other words, they might be thinking of what comes after streaming, but right now they are basking in the sun of streaming. Warner Music was worth $5 billion, $4 billion, $3 billion when he bought it. And now it's worth 17. UMG at one point before streaming was worth 5 billion. I think now it's trading at in the 30s. And the same thing for Sony. What has dramatically changed is the distribution of music turned these companies into gold mines and not necessarily because the talent has increased dramatically, but the way you distribute the talent has increased dramatically. So I don't think they're trying to figure out what the next move is. I think they're focusing on how to expand as much as possible their ability to generate money from streaming. But if you ask them what comes after streaming, I think that also applies for Netflix and Disney Plus. I think it's the same issue. What comes after streaming. I don't think anybody has an answer, but they're not concerned about having an answer because they're minting money with the streaming approach, especially the music companies in media or in television, et cetera, is a little different. But in the music business, the streaming is, is turned into a proverbial gold mine. In our lifetime, Alan, you and I saw the transition from albums to CDs. We saw that terrible transition from CDs to stream it song by song on Apple. And then we've seen the transition to subscription, which has actually made the industry healthy again, as you point out. Any big lessons from these past dislocations and transitions? Yes. You cannot be afraid of transition. Remember in Napster, which was the early form of what we're talking about, the record companies were so frightened that they literally killed Napster. 
I was representing Napster and I was trying to work out arrangements with the three companies or four companies, whatever it was. And they were so frightened and what they were frightened of actually turned out to be the greatest thing that ever happened to them. So I think that if people don't view progress and new opportunities with open arms, they're making a huge mistake. And every time companies are afraid of the future, they usually die. And when the CD came out, and I remember I was at Warner Communications, I was running MTV at the time, somebody brought out the CD player. He was from Japan. They had to have a little transformer so we could play it in the U.S. And they put the CD on. The lawyers said, oh, my God, that's a master quality recording. We have to stop the CD. And Warner, I remember it was Bob Krasnow and a few guys said, what are you crazy? This is this is the future. We've got to get aboard. And they won. And when the downloads came and digital came and Napster came, it was the same argument, except this time the lawyers said we have to stop it. And the lawyers won. People are afraid of the unknown. That's always been the case, not only in our industry, but in life. But the CD, when it finally became popular, every person who had an LP album had to go buy the same album in a CD. And during the 80s, the record business flourished because of CDs. It's very similar to what happened with streaming. It's generating 10 times more money than it did when people were buying individual tracks or whatever you want to call it. So what I've learned in life is I am always open to new ideas, open to new people, open to new clients, because that's where the future is. The future isn't where people are frozen in a position or in a place. It's thinking about what is the next step. Let's go back on the CDs a little bit. Do you think we would have made the transition to digital finally if it had not been for Steve Jobs? It's a very good question. I would say that what Steve Jobs did, that interim step, allowed streaming to come along and be accepted. If there was no Steve Jobs and he didn't create what he created, I think it would have been much more difficult for the record companies to accept streaming. And do you think the record business, the music business, would still be in the doldrums if not for the subscription services like Spotify, Apple, and Amazon? Oh, yeah. They'd be schlepping along. Oh, yeah, it would be entirely different. I mean, I, I, have, I can't even perceive of where the record business would be today without streaming. You had a long history and have had a long history of representing artists, and many credit you personally for finally getting artists the money they deserve, yet not undermining the music companies that help them get that revenue. When did that change begin? And was there a particular deal that was the tipping point? Over time, as I developed more of a reputation, I had credibility. I was representing so many artists that the record companies had to listen to what I said and had to concede to some of the important points that I wanted, which was creative control more than they had before and financial control. In other words, making much better financial deals and also the ownership of masters. That came along as I developed more credibility and I became more powerful as an entity so that when I was dealing with a record company and they knew that 
they weren't dealing with me with one artist, but they were dealing with me with 20 artists, I was able to accomplish more. And I always remembered one of my first clients who should be nameless, had an artist on his label and the guy had a huge hit. And I said, well, Jesus, you must owe this guy a fortune. No, no, no. You know what I did? I rented him a Cadillac or I bought him. In other words, artists just weren't getting paid. They, they were just getting screwed and it was terrible. So as time went by and I recognized this as well as many other people, but thank God I eventually created enough power to be able to change it. Now artists are paid beyond properly. The companies that are in the music business are all major public companies and artists are now getting their due. They're getting their due in the areas I just described, financially, creatively, and certain own their masters. And I'm very proud of that because uh, I think that if there's one contribution I've made to the record industry was what I was able to accomplish for artists. So let me give you a tip of the hat here. You weren't always Alan Grubman. When I met you back in 1980, you were the guy on the rise, but not yet the biggest in the business. But in my mind, you were the smartest. Probably not many people know this story, but MTV was in danger of being shut down in the first few years. My boss was fired about a year after MTV launched. By the way, because of that, I got to move from the creative side, running the product, to really building the company as the COO. But it's interesting to me that when I sort of hit that and I went from being, you got to make a successful product, which we did. And then my next challenge was, we got to figure out how to make money because the other folks here have not been successful with that. They're gone. It's your, on your back. I reached out to you and you were not just a lawyer for us. You were a full partner in developing the business strategy and operating plan. You made that jump from being the lawyer to being the business strategist who was a consultant and trusted advisor to many businesses and executives. How did you make the jump? I always believed that to be a great lawyer, you have to be a great businessman. So as soon as I started practicing law and obtaining clients, I would always be interested in the reasoning that they had for their business decisions. I was never the kind of lawyer that could sit down and draft contracts or could come up with the legal arguments. What I had was an enormous amount of common sense and an understanding of the law and an understanding of business. So as time went by and I built the law firm and it got bigger and bigger, my responsibilities for doing the legal work became less. And this great group of lawyers we have here, they took care of the law and I focused on advising clients, coming up with ideas and negotiating very interesting lucrative, non-traditional deals for them. But I always considered myself more of a businessman than a traditional lawyer, and it worked out fine. I always said, I'm a businessman first and a lawyer second. So how did having that bigger picture view and that higher level access in a company help the artist you represented? Oh, in my opinion, life is all about relationships. The greater the relationships you have with people, the more positive relationships you have with people, the more they're going to do for you. 
So when I would sit down and negotiate a contract with a superstar and I'm dealing with the CEO of the company who I have a professional relationship with, a personal relationship, etc., I will do better for my client, the artist, because of my relationship with the person I'm dealing with than if I didn't have a relationship. Take your two hands and put one finger six inches or 12 inches away from the other finger. In every negotiation, the finger on the left is the minimum that you will get no matter what your relationship was. That's the minimum you're going to get. And the right finger is the maximum you're going to get. No matter if the guy's your brother-in-law, he's not going to give you more than that. But if you have great relationships, you will get closer to the right finger than you will to the left finger because there's a good feeling there. And especially if I'm representing people who are worthy of it. But I've seen artists get terrible deals because their representatives had terrible relationships with the companies. So relationships is critically important in being successful in any industry, especially the entertainment industry. So talk about how you know you've done a good deal. Well, you know something? I really believe that the best deals ever made are the deals where both parties walk away not 100% happy. So in other words, if I'm representing a client and I know I've done a really good deal, I know that I didn't take the last cent I can get from the person I'm negotiating with. Because when you make a deal, when one person thinks that they killed it and the other person thinks that they got screwed, the person that got screwed is waiting for the moment to get even. Well, you know, Steve Ross had that same philosophy. Don't destroy people in the process because you got to be in business with them. What is that great mafia line? You don't wound your enemies, you kill them. The idea here is if you negotiate and you end up wounding a person, he's going to come back and try to kill you. So, you know, and what I've been told my whole career is that my talent is everybody walks away feeling okay. And I've made phenomenal deals for my clients. And, and, and by the way, the other side at the end of the day will say, you know, Alan got all this from us, but you know what? We feel okay about it for whatever reasons. And that's been a tremendous asset to me. So again, you don't want to make killer deals. You want to make phenomenal deals, but you don't want to go over the edge. You know, you're famous for keeping negotiations friendly and often funny. Is that just your personality or is that your strategy? Both. You can get more done with a great laugh than you can with a great line. More on math and magic right after this quick break. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. 
So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Alan Grubman. I want to go back in time to young Alan. You're a Capricorn, which is a strong business sign. You were born in 1942. You grew up in Brooklyn in the 1940s and 50s. And can you paint us a picture of Brooklyn in those days and how you grew up? Well, okay. I grew up in Brooklyn, middle-class Jewish family. My mother and father, they were married till the day they died. At the age of 11, my mother decided she was a stage mother. For some reason, she heard me sing. I, she'd say I, I would sing myself to sleep. Who the heck knows? But she ends up getting me an audition in a television show on NBC. It was called the Horn and Otter Children's Hour. And it was basically a group of very talented kids uh, who every Sunday, for an hour, we were on NBC. And living in Brooklyn, the only time you ever were in a limousine was at a funeral. In other words, as part of the package deal at the funeral home, you got the front car, which we know was in there. And then the car right behind it was a limousine for the family. When I was on the Children's Hour, every Saturday morning, we would rehearse at 30 Rockefeller Center, and they'd pick me up in a limousine, and they would take me to rehearsal. And then, after rehearsal, they would take us out to, like, great restaurants. Growing up in Brooklyn, the only two restaurants I ever went to was a deli and Chinese food on Sunday. So I was on that show for two years, and then my voice changed. That was the end of it. But... It made an enormous impression on me, the entertainment. I said, this is really good. This is fun. So now I'm still living in Brooklyn. I end up going to high school. I end up going to college. And then when I went to Brooklyn Law School, I said, you know, I remember that 
everybody in the entertainment business, you know, going to good restaurants, having fun, blah, blah. And that's when I decided that I wanted to become an entertainment lawyer. So growing up in Brooklyn, I grew up in a very middle-class neighborhood. I had a very good family life. And that exposure to the entertainment business is what motivated me to, after law school, I said, I want to be an entertainment lawyer. And by the way, some of the most successful people in show business live in Brooklyn. Obviously, my dear friend Geffen lives in Brooklyn, Streisand, Neil Diamond, it goes on and on and on. So for some reason, Brooklyn was this breeding ground for people who end up in the entertainment industry. Tell me about school. Good student, not a good student, interested student, have a lot of friends. To paint the picture a little bit. Okay. In school, I was an average athlete and at best an average student. Um, I was not overly popular. I wasn't like uh, an outcast. I was a normal average kid in high school and same thing in, in college. I belonged to a fraternity, but of course, the net, not the best fraternity. And I was always a very weak student academically. I, I don't know what the reason is. You know, maybe I wasn't interested or whatever. And then I go to Brooklyn Law School. And in Brooklyn Law School, they encourage you to take a job after school working for a lawyer in downtown Brooklyn. So I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. So my first year in law school, I got a job at the William Morris Agency from four to eight at night, like after school. This is interesting. The second and third year, I was a page at CBS. I would walk into class every day with a gray sport jacket and a CBS eye. And everybody would say, what's wrong with Grubman? Is he crazy? What is he doing? Showing people to their seats? What's wrong with them? You know what they found out about 10 years later? That there was nothing wrong with me, if you get my drift. So I'll put it to you this way. I didn't graduate at the top of my class and I'm being very facetious. And that's why when I graduated and I, and I found a job working for a lawyer, I couldn't get a job in a big law firm because I didn't have the grades. So I started working for a man by the name of Walter Hofer, who at one time, represented the Beatles in the early 60s. But that's the progression of my life up until the time I started my own practice in 74. Basically, that was it. And I was very lucky. You know, I'm a big believer that luck is 75% of the game and brains is 25%. If you don't get that 75% of luck, the 25% of brains is, is useless. One time Elton John said to me, Alan, there are a thousand Elton Johns in this world, but I was the one that got that great opportunity. And that to me is luck, is being in the right place at the right time. And I've been very, very lucky, beyond lucky. So you start your firm in the mid 70s. By the late 70s, the legendary Walter Yetnikoff was at its peak of power and not yet at his peak of craziness. Uh, head of CBS Records. You were one of the few people who he would listen to and respect. What did you learn from Walter? What made him great in spite of his problems? He, he taught me a great expression. It's not about the money. It's about the money. Now, what do I mean by that? Walter Yetnikoff was a lawyer. He went to Columbia. He practiced law. And then he ended up being 
CEO of CBS Records. He didn't understand music. It isn't like he was looking for talent like Clive Davis. But you know what? As soon as there was somebody that became very successful, he'd bring him into the office and he'd say, boys, let's renegotiate your contract. And he would renegotiate the contract and give him tons of money. And then they would love him. That's when I realized that a very important part of everybody's career is not only the creative, it's also the monetary. The music business is made up of music and business. That's when I realized how critically important the business side of the music business is. And the people who know how to handle that side of the business are the ones that do very, very well. That's what I learned from him. I learned that you take care of people because if they, as I said before, if you take care of them, they're going to take care of you. And all these artists loved him, whether it was Michael Jackson, whether it was Springsteen, before he went crazy, Billy Joel, he, they all loved him. You know why? He made sure that they made a lot of money. So at a certain point, you realized you had skills and relationships beyond music and you could provide services beyond negotiating just entertainment deals. When did you have that epiphany? What started it for you? In 2000, in the late 90s, I saw that the music business was going through a very strange period. There was all kinds of uh, the stealing of music. And I said, I better expand my horizons. And I started hiring a couple of lawyers who knew movies and television, et cetera, et cetera. And I did that as a defense mechanism because I thought maybe the music practice would be dramatically hurt if all of a sudden the way it used to function will no longer function. And then I started bringing in some guys. I hired some people that knew these other areas. And today, I would say music is probably at most 50% of the practice. So it's one of the few times I had great foresight. That was a big transition for you. Nobody, by the way, had ever done that in the music business uh, on that side of it. What's the business lesson here in that transformation of your firm? The business lesson is, it's just like if you're a lawyer and you have one client and you're dependent upon that client, that puts you in a very weak position. You will always be much stronger if you have 10 clients than if you have one or two. Same thing here. I was nervous that the music business was going to go through a terrible period. And I said, oh my God, if that happens, I don't have anything to fall back on. So by developing clients in all different areas, whether it's movies, television, sports, journalism, theater, if one area is soft, it gets picked up by the other areas. So I came to realize how, it, how important it was to diversify legally. And I was right, because the fact that I wasn't just a music law firm anymore, but we did other things, just gave us more prestige, more credibility, and eventually became much more lucrative. And today, you know, we represent all kinds. We represent CEOs, we represent media companies, we represent record companies, we represent iHeart Radio, Live. it goes on and on. And that is because we diversified. You were one of the early founders, right in the beginning, when Ahmed Erdogan and Jan Winter put together the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This year, 
you were the first music attorney to ever be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for your contributions to the business and obviously to the artist. That's heady stuff for a guy who was singing on a children's show on NBC from Brooklyn. Give us just a couple of minutes of how that felt. You know, it's interesting. One of my dearest friends is a guy by the name of David Geffen that some of your audience might know, some might not. He's an enormously successful guy. Grew up in Brooklyn, not far from where I grew up. And we've had the following conversation. Could we have ever imagined when we were growing up that we would be in the position we're in now? It was incomprehensible because when we were growing up, if you were rich, you lived in Great Neck or you lived in Scarsdale. It was a whole different level of success and wealth. So when I think about my life now, I couldn't have perceived, I mean, I've just been so lucky. I couldn't perceive that I would ever be able to live the life I live now. And it's as simple as that. Let's get some advice from you. If someone's starting in the music business today, what would you tell them? In what area? Let's say they're going to start on the business side of the music business today. You know what I would say to them? If Let's say we're talking about lawyers, hypothetically. I would say if you can work for a large firm, you should do that for a few years because they will train you to be a great lawyer and then you'll come to me. In terms of business, I am a big believer in entrepreneurship. To become a successful entrepreneur is extraordinarily unusual. But if you succeed, the world is open to you. There are two kinds of people. There are people who are destined to be employees and executives. And then there were people that were destined to be entrepreneurs. You basically have always had the mentality of an entrepreneur. Even though you ran companies, but you always thought like an entrepreneur. So let's go to some more advice. How about someone who's renegotiating their employment contract? Well, first of all, it depends on what their leverage is. And if they have leverage, I would tell them to be very aggressive because, you know, it's the old story. I always say to people, if I ask for the absurd, I end up getting the semi-absurd. Whereas if you ask for the reasonable, you end up with less than reasonable. So if somebody is renegotiating their contract and they're doing a great job, don't be afraid to ask. Because my grandmother used to say, if you don't ask, you don't get. So if you could go back in time and give some advice to your 21-year-old self, what would that advice be? I would have said, follow your love and your passion, which is what I did, and be as pleasantly aggressive as you can be. You shouldn't be obnoxiously aggressive, but when people see that you are ambitious and you're aggressive in the right way, you will get much farther than if you play it safe. So we normally end every episode of Math and Magic with a shout out to the greats of Math and Magic and Business. But given who you are, And in your 80 years, the people you've encountered, can you give us the three or four people you've encountered who you stick in your mind as the legends, the greats? Well, um, I would probably have to say Steve Ross was this brilliant, brilliant man who created Warner Brothers. I would say him 
I had the opportunity to meet Bill Paley, who was a phenomenal and creative businessman. And let's tell people who Bill Paley was, started CBS. And although people don't know who Bill Paley is today, which shocks me, uh, Bill Paley in the 60s, 70s could not have been more powerful. You know, he founded CBS. In the record business, he was very controversial, but Ahmed Erdogan was a true legend. David Geffen obviously was a great inspiration to me. And I'll tell you that story. I met David Geffen in 1981 when I was making a deal with him with Hall and & Oates. And we hit it off immediately. And we became very, very good friends over the years. And he has been a tremendous booster of mine. But, you know, David Geffen is an example of a true entrepreneur. And he never built CBS or he never built General Motors. But as an entrepreneur, he was always phenomenally successful, first as a manager, then as a record executive, and then an owner of DreamWorks. He was always very, very successful. And he was always been very important in my life. Alan, you are a unique human being, and uh, you've done so much, touched so many people, me included. Thanks for being with us today, and thanks for all you've done. My pleasure, Bob, and thank you for inviting me. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Alan. One, embrace the future. When the music industry jumped from records to CDs to streaming, Alan was always on the side of the future. Work with progress not against it. New developments will keep your business thriving. Two, don't wound your enemies. In negotiations, don't wring your opponent dry. That will just leave them feeling vengeful. A successful deal is one that's fair on both ends and leaves each side feeling pretty good about what they got. Three, build relationships. Alan's the first to admit that he didn't get to where he is by being top of his class. It's his personality and ability to form relationships that built a strong reputation. Forming and maintaining friendships with colleagues can only help you in the long run. It's easier to make a good deal when you know the person sitting across the table. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sydney Rosenblum for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Our editor, Emily Marinoff. Our engineer, Jessica Kramchich. Our executive producers, Nikki Etor and Ali Perry. And of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.